It's 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Healthy Options with Rhonda Feynman is up next. Good morning. Hi. Today on Healthy Options, we will be discussing medical ethics with our, with our guest, Deb Estelle. I'm Rhonda Feynman. Deborah Stell has been in the medical field for the last 25 years, working as a patient advocate and as a healthcare practitioner in private practice in Maine, Colorado, and Massachusetts. She's been the director of community programs for adults with mental illness, a director of a program for survivors of domestic abuse, and in addition, she's been the director of a resident program for youths aged 6 through 16 as a regional manager for a post-adoption support program. She's also an acupuncturist in private practice. Through this extensive background, she's developed an understanding of the critical issues that are essential to a healthy practitioner and client association. And she joins us here today on Healthy Options to discuss some of the ethical considerations from both the perspective of a practitioner and as a client advocate. De- Deb Estelle, welcome to Healthy Options. Good morning. Thank you, Rhonda. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, medical ethics is such a, a broad topic, and, I, and, and, you know, we could go on for months um, trying to, uh, to figure out what that means. So let's, um, what I'm thinking is um, that we would really be talking about um, some of this, the ways to create safety and make sure that there is appropriate relationship between a healthcare practitioner and uh, a client. Is, what would you add to that, or how would you describe that? Sure. I think that that's um, immediately where people's minds go when you talk about ethics um, in in any kind of uh, professional practice. Um, and, and I, but I think people, you know, need to also understand that ethical standards are can be much broader than that. Um, everybody who comes into a profession um, comes in, and hopefully their training will give them the definitions for the code of ethics that the that the particular profession has set up for themselves, and that would include a definition of the values that the, that the profession has come to um, that they've decided are important, a definition of the principles of practice that are important, um, a a definition of standards of behavior um, for bo- for the practitioner, um, and also a, a, a delineation of accountability, who the practitioner is is accountable to, um, because practitioners are accountable to their patients, but they're also accountable to other members of their profession, and also to their licensing board, and to the broader community where they provide whatever service they're providing. So. You know, ethics is a really broad topic. So when we're discussing, uh, well, let's talk a bit about licensed professionals. Um, would you say that for most um, uh, state licensing boards that there, that there, is, there are definitely criteria or are there some professions that aren't? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, any profession that has a licensing requirement has certain standards that are set out um, within the licensing requirement where they're agreeing that that they have not, you know, participated in, in um, criminal activity, they haven't been charged or sentenced for criminal activity, and, th- and that's probably the most basic one. Um, beyond that, you know, depending on the profession, the things that you, when you submit your your application for relicensure, that you're saying that you 
um, you know, have or have not done over the past period of time since your license was um, up for renewal, you know, you make a statement that you haven't haven't engaged in certain behaviors or that you have engaged in other uh, positive behaviors like getting, keeping your continuing education current, um, that you have um, possibly things like insurance, that you have not engaged in criminal activity, that you have not uh, been treated for uh, an illness that would interfere with your ability to practice your profession, um, either you know ethically or with the mental competency that's required to perform your job. Right. So there are some safeguards that are, are legislated, as it were, and right. then there are things that um, each profession can talk about. So um, now we don't have everyone represented here, but it, massage therapists, acupuncturists, medical doctors, you know, we could go through the gamut, uh, eye doctors, dentists, you know, right. that, those kinds of things, um, would have uh, a practice, uh, an ethical practice in terms of, um, of what, how to have a client um, pr- practitioner relationship. What's appropriate? How do we talk to each other? Um, well, I guess uh, the question is: What are the responsibilities? What can we? Um, what do we? What would we say are, are the practitioners' responsibilities? And and I think that since this, these kinds of things are mutual, what what are the responsibilities of a of a client of a patient? Right. I think that 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 that's um, that's a piece of the discussion that doesn't happen very often. Um, but I think we could start certainly by talking about what are the responsibilities of the practitioner, um, and you know the the a place where people can go certainly to find out what is the standard within the within the profession is if there's a national organization that represents that that profession. Um, one that I'm very familiar with is the National Association of Social Workers. And on their website, they have a very extensive document that is the Code of Ethics for the National Association of Social Workers. And so you should, you know, if you're curious about any particular profession, look it up on the, on the Internet and see what the national standards are. If there is a national organization for that group, do they have a statement of ethics and what does it include? What does it cover? Um, you know, in, in the um, National Association of Social Workers, their ethical principles are set out um, and they, they state a value and then they state the principle that relates to that value. And they also uh, set forward um, a, set, a statement about ethical standards where they delineate what does it mean to be responsible to your clients, to your colleagues, to the setting you work in, to the profession, and then gen- and to society at large is the largest group to whom they say that, that uh, social workers have ethical responsibility. What does that mean? I mean, what, what, is there a specific thing we can... Talk about to society. What would? Well, for example, in in the um, in in the social work field, um, you know, the, the one of the primary values of the social work field is that a social worker will be have the value of service, and the ethical principle that relates to that value is that social workers' primary goal is to help people in need mm-hmm. and to address social problems. Mm-hmm. So they. The, and then the statement goes on to further say that social workers, and I'm quoting here from the website, is that social workers will elevate service to others above self-interest. Mm. Social workers draw on their knowledge, values, and skills to help people in need and to address social problems. 
social workers are encouraged to volunteer some portion of their professional skills with no expectation of, of significant financial return. That's a very important value and principle that's very clearly delineated. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, everybody adheres to, you know, it doesn't tell you how, how much you're supposed to do that. <laughs> but it does say that that's an expectation, that, that that will be a core value and principle for social workers. So we would assume, we should never assume, but we, we might even think about that, that other professions, physicians and all of the, these um, um, health workers, um, do have that kind of, uh, of value in their system to say, well, we treat people with respect. We, we don't, um, perhaps we don't say no to health care. We say, you know, we have to serve people, you know, uh, because they're in need, right. something like that. And, and you go into a hospital and you will see that most hospitals um, have a statement somewhere that they provide that makes a statement that the hospital, you know, has a policy around providing services to people that cannot afford to pay. You might have to identify yourself as a person who cannot afford to pay to request those, you know, benevolent services. Mm -hmm. But the hospital makes a statement that those services are available upon request. And that, of course, is the ideal. Right. That is the ideal. For those who perhaps have seen Michael Moore's movie, you know, Sicko, we... And he he's, has a few examples where that's not, in, in fact, uh, in fact, uh, um, born fruit in some people's experience. But right. but still, what we're talking about are the ideal, the ideas that uh, are with the responsibility when you are going in to see somebody. There's an assumption that you are as a as a client, as it were. You're saying, well. I'm trusting that the person I'm calling, whatever the profession, is working under these codes. And you may not even be thinking about it. And, and, and yet, it, there, there they are. So we, here we are in a, um, a situation, um, you know, first do no harm is a practitioner's, right, uh, point right. of view. Uh, um, what then would be a responsibility of a client? To not do harm. What what does that mean? What's what's the uh, the other side of that? Well, you know, in my in my experience, I think so much of um, providing service to someone is developing a relationship with them, and in that in the context of that relationship, the person that's receiving the service, the patient or the client, um, needs to feel you know honored, respected, like they're a credible person, and if they have that relationship with their practitioner, then the practitioner can reasonably expect similar kinds of behavior in return from the from the client or the patient. Um, I think that um, people coming for service have a responsibility to tell the truth to the practitioner because the kind of service that's going to be provided is going to be based on the information that the client provides. And so information should be provided freely and with full disclosure. Um, a, a practitioner cannot be held responsible for making a bad decision or what turns out to be a bad decision or a poor judgment if they don't have full information. That, you know, that to me is the primary, the primary basis of, of this kind of relationship is that there has to be honesty between the two, between the two people. 
Um, the other thing that I that I believe that the client has a responsibility to the practitioner is to is that if they come in and and they have a discussion, say about fees, that and they accept the service, you know, that they're going to pay for it, or that somehow financial uh, exchange is going to happen, then the the person who's receiving the service really needs to be very upfront and honest about whether or not they can they can pay. Mm-hmm. Right. So there there's some respect right. and and uh, honesty on every level. Right. Right. Now here here are all the ideal aspects of of what is a, a good client health practitioner association. And unfortunately, we do see these things go wrong. <laughs> yes. Um, from a benign going wrong, for instance, oh, I didn't agree to pay you blah, 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 you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't, th- didn't think this would be $30. I thought it was going to be 10 That's all I can afford you. Um, to, uh, to actually quite gross misconduct, sexual abuse, or uh, any kind of inappropriate power relationship. Let's talk about that. Actually, we'll talk a little bit more about, about what, what can go wrong, but let's talk about those kinds of dynamics in uh, a client um, healthcare relationship. I'm, I'm thinking of, a, of that kind of the power dynamic. How do we, uh, you know, um, power over, power with, this mutual communication? Is that something that you could address as well? Well, I think that that varies depending on what the service is that's being provided. I think a person who's going for, um, for example, massage is going to expect that they're going to have some physical contact. Now, I think that's where the honesty also comes in because the person who's receiving the massage needs to be able to say to the practitioner, that level of touch is making me feel uncomfortable. At the same time, the practitioner has a responsibility to say to the patient and really mean it, if anything that I do makes you feel uncomfortable, please let me know. And, you know, we can talk about it. I can explain to you why I'm doing what I'm doing, why I think it's necessary for you to have this kind of treatment, or I can stop immediately if it makes you uncomfortable. And really mean it. And really mean it. Um, and But I believe in those kind of situations where physical touch is, a, is an expected part of the treatment. That could include medical doctors, physical therapists, acupuncturists, massage therapists. It should not include people like, um, say, for example, uh, hairstylists. There shouldn't be more than a very specific kind of uh, and very limited kind of physical touch that's involved with somebody who's, who's doing your hair. Um, and, and hairstylists are also a licensed profession. So there are standards around what kind of, you know, things could be expected from a, a hairdresser and what kind of training they might have to perform the service that they're offering. Um, with, other kinds of, with other kinds of professions like acupuncture, for example, I think that it is important in the beginning stage of the relationship to discuss with the patient the kinds of techniques and treatment they might receive, which would include a discussion of, what kind of techniques you're going to use, what kind of touch that would involve, what kind of clothing the person might need to either wear or not wear during the course of the treatment, and to make sure that the patient is comfortable with that before you proceed. So there has to be that kind of open and and honest communication. Um, How do things go wrong on on the client side? You know, what, what, what can happen... 
Well, I think sometimes when people come in for treatment, they're, um, you know, they, they uh, project. Um, they might be projecting uh, an experience that was unpleasant with a different practitioner. They might be projecting something that they, you know, are, that they are wishing would happen. Um, because when you get into the role of being, you know, the, the patient who's receiving something from someone who is more knowledgeable about the condition that you're trying to treat and to ameliorate, you, you know, you, you want to believe that everything that they're doing is right for you. So you're in a, a, a less powerful position. Um, and, and sometimes when you give up your power as a patient, that, that's not the best thing for you. So, causes misinterpretation of what happened, what's happening, or what's going on. Right. So, um, so the the clarity on this is of the of the of the practitioner is this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to proceed. The uh, the responsibility of the client is to say, "Wow, I thought we were going to do this," or um, "I'm uncomfortable with you doing that," or, or "I don't understand. Can you explain that again?" Right. And I think for both practitioner right. and patient, everybody needs to trust their instinct. If, as a patient, you're hearing from a practitioner, I need to do this procedure for you, and it still doesn't feel right to you as a patient, feel comfortable to say, no, I, I, I can't allow you to do that. I'm not comfortable. So, I, you know, and you can also check out with other practitioners, is this something that's that's reasonable within you know, the, the treatment that I'm supposed to be getting. Right. So what is ethical and what is appropriate? Right. By the way, uh, you're tuned uh, to Healthy Options, and you're listening to WERU, and uh, we're at 89.9 Blue Hill and 102.9 Bangor. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're uh, discussing medical ethics and how to create safety and uh, discuss the issues involved in a healthy practitioner and client association. So, you know, not a lot of people, sometimes people come and they don't have the voice. They don't have the words. It's hard to say no. Um, so it's really, that's got to be, that's even more responsibility for the practitioner to say, okay, I'm really going to be, because un- of, of being in that understanding position that we might need to do something and I want to explain it to you, and is that, Go out that extra mile, let's say, right. to make sure someone understands what's going on. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and also I think that practitioners can rely also on the ethical standards of their profession. For, again, using the social workers as an example, they're very explicit in their ethical standards about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in terms of sexual relationships. And they're very clear that that social workers should never engage in sexual relations with a current or former client, regardless of whether or not the relationship is, is consensual or forced. Mm-hmm. And, they should, and they go further to even say that social workers should not engage in, in sexual activities or contact with clients' relatives or with, the person, with people that the clients have close personal relationships with. So they carry it a couple of um, circles beyond the the relationship between the practitioner and the immediate client. So we're really talking about boundaries that are very, very clear. Yes. And, and you know, we've used a couple of words. Let's talk about what projection is and, and what boundaries are. 
you know, some people might, might not know what those things are. Well, projection is when a person has an experience that can either be incredibly positive or it can be also negative. And you go into a relationship with someone who, for whatever reason, reminds you of the person that you had that prior relationship with. And you put on to that new person some of the feelings, either positive or negative, about what happened to you in the past. That's projection. So there's... There's this idea that you're really not in the moment, that consciously or unconsciously you're living somewhere. Is that like transference? It, it's more of an unconscious process. Right. I don't think people are always aware that that's an element of what's going on. It just, it just happens. Somebody that you see, you know, that, you're, that reminds you of someone from your past, it could be something as simple as a, a gesture, a, a way of speaking, um, some mannerisms, um, or it could be a physical resemblance. Mm-hmm. Or it could be none of those things, and it's just what you do Correct. when you go into a certain kind of therapeutic relationship. Right. So, okay. And with boundaries, we're just talking about having, a, correct me if I'm wrong and add to this, this the idea of, um, well, like, here's Rhonda, then there's some space, then there's Deb. You know, here's here's me. Here's uh, a, a, a neutral space, and then the, another person that we're actually separate individuals, and uh, with something like that. You know, with with clear delineated edges, and um, yes, and we yeah, both have a roles. responsibility for maintaining those boundaries, and right. those boundaries can shift depending on the circumstance, depending on um, who we are in the moment with each other. Um, I mean, at, at one moment, people can be interacting with one another as friends, and then in another moment, they can be interacting with one another as business associates um, or people transacting some kind of business arrangement with each other. The boundaries in those situations are different. The people are the same. Hmm. Well, I guess this really is where it comes into some other aspects of person of personality and um the idea of how people interact with each other. There's some people who are totally interactive, um, what, 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 interpersonal kind of, of ideas that, uh, that they walk into a situation, they have to feel very comfortable in a particular way. Someone else might say, I'm here to fix my shoulder. Right. And this person needs to fix my shoulder. I really don't care who they are in a way. Mm-hmm. I want you to just fix my <laughs> shoulder. And then I guess there are gamuts along that, you know. Um, you're caring for me, therefore you must be in love with me. You're caring for me, therefore I must be in love with you. You know those kinds of of warping of the of that that kind of boundary. Yes, and and also there are some practitioners who, even though they're or or patients for that matter, even though they're there to have their shoulder taken care of, they want you to know about their mother and their father and their kids and how the rest of their day was. And some practitioners do that also in terms of making conversation while they're providing the treatment. It's important not to carry that out of the confines of the treatment, and that's where confidentiality comes in because all people who are receiving a professional service from, a, from someone licensed either as a social worker or a mental health professional or um, a health care practitioner has a right to expect 
that what happens in that relationship is going to be protected in terms of privacy and that the and there the responsibility really is on the practitioner to maintain that boundary regardless of the setting that they're in the patient doesn't have that same responsibility right they can talk to their friends they can talk about what's going on right without uh you know it's or their anything experience. that the practitioner said to them right you know that that's their right the the person who has the responsibility for confidentiality is the practitioner right so let's talk about um some of the ways things can go wrong okay a little bit we 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 have discussed it and you know, touched on it a little bit but um you know when you 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 have a lot of experience working with a variety of individuals some adults with mental illness children who have um some some difficulties um what is unique about some of these situations what 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 can happen what's what what as practitioners do we have to do to to take take care of ourselves well i i think that if you are a practitioner who's um working with children you need to be especially careful and understand both your professional responsibilities as well as the legal responsibilities you have. Um, I think working with children, um, depending on the age of the child and the, the relationship that you have with the parent, um, you should always work with the parent present. Um, there, are some, there are certain situations where that's not you know, not going to happen, and that's more, um, you know, in a therapeutic, psychiatric, or psychological support counseling kind of role. In those situations, frequently the parent is not present. Um, But you have to have uh, professional boundaries. You have to have the trust of your patient. You have to have the trust of your your patient's parent. Um, and that has to be based on real good, solid um, professional ethics. And, and people need to know that you are reliable if they're going to trust their child to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then with the adult relationships? With adult relationships, <clears throat> the, I think things get a little softer there because they are, they are if they're adults, they are of an, of an age generally where they can make decisions for themselves. And unless there's a guardianship arrangement or someone else is designated as their um, legal decision maker, then you work that out as a practitioner with that patient or with that client. Um, Still, I think the practitioner has the greater share of the responsibility for maintaining ethical relationships Mm -hmm. with their patients. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and then the client aspect of it is to uh, to be really clear about um, what your expectations are and, yeah. and what's going on. And when misinterpretation happens, you know, um, I'm, I'm just thinking of, of a case of uh, that I, I read about where um, uh, it was actually in a, in a clinical, not social worker, I think she, uh, this was a actually psychotherapist situation where uh, one, the practitioner, a woman, was accused of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there was no sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. But there was a history in this person's um, past. So the projection dynamic was going. 
And what, what came up is it actually had to go to court. I mean, there was actually a huge ethical, legal um, situation. And it, the practitioner was in a p- position of, of finding it very hard to defend herself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the person had experience and was saying all the right things. And really, to the outside world, it didn't look so good. Right. You know? Um, and yet, when I spoke to this, uh, this practitioner years later, um, she said, although it took her a long time to prove her innocence, which she was innocent, um, she said it was a very important process. It was very important to have the ethics board in there. It was very important to have the state board. It was a very important conversation to have. Mm-hmm. And even though she was quite, uh, you know, financially and professionally um, at, at a disadvantage during that process. So, you know, those kinds of things can happen as well as, as, as exactly the opposite, where, in fact, there is some misdeed going on and, and that's getting hidden somewhere. So we have, we have both ends of the spectrum um, where there's a false accusation and then there's actually a true accusation. Right. And, and the false accusations, I, I think there are ways that practitioners can, um, can protect themselves somewhat. You can never protect yourself 100%. Mm-hmm. And the person you're speaking about is absolutely right. That's why those, those boards are there. People can take their grievances to another level if the person happens to be in a private practice. Um, but I think a practitioner, one of the ways that, or some of the ways that practitioners protect themselves is they do a really thorough intake and gathering of information if someone comes to them for service. They also, they also get supervision. And in the supervision, they have to open themselves up to discussing the cases that are going on in great detail, also not just in terms of fact, but in terms of what does the emotional content feel like? Um, to the practitioner. To the practitioner. And the practitioner has that discussion with their supervisor. And most people that I'm familiar with who are in private practice are in some kind of supervision group where they meet with other practitioners and they discuss their cases. And they discuss those cases both from, you know, from the real factual perspective. This is a person, you know, who lives in this place and, and this is what happened to them and this is the treatment they've received to, and when the person comes in, they, you know, they don't make eye contact with me. The feeling that I have when we're talking about these issues that are really important to them is that they're not present in the room with me, that they're really someplace else. Or, you know, after after they when they go to leave, they always want to hold hold my hand when I'm shaking hands with them, saying goodbye for longer than I'm comfortable with. You know, so and and the supervisor helps the practitioner work through what some of that is. And sometimes you can really pick up stuff way before it becomes a problem. So it's really important to really have commu- um, colleagues, collegial support yes, with and, a lot of these issues. Right, and people who are in private practice have a harder time getting that than people who work in an agency setting or hospital setting. You have to really go out of your way to, to get these nuances dealt with. 
Right, and you have to feel comfortable enough with the person that you're receiving supervision from or with the group that you're feeling supervi- receiving supervision from to open yourself up and expose your vulnerabilities, but your, you know, your potential maybe lack of knowledge in an area. And, you know, all of us have our, you know, we're, we're kind of uncomfortable doing that. Like, do I really know what I'm doing? Do I want my colleagues to know I have these questions? You know, but all of that is part of the professional development process, and and that's a really important thing to have happen, mm. regardless of how experienced you are as a practitioner. Supervision is important. It seems almost more important, I mean, obviously very important when you're beginning, but as you get more seasoned, it's easy to fall into habits and uh, and and miss something just because... You're, you, you've seen it all, or you think you've seen it all. <laughs> right. I think that happened. <laughs> right. And you, oh, my goodness. There's something here. Right. By the way, uh, once again, I want to do this ID. We're listening. Um, we're d- you're listening to Healthy Options, and this is uh, Community Radio, WERU-FM at 89.9 Blue Hill and 102.9 in Bangor. And uh, we're listening and speaking with Deb Estelle, who's uh, been in the medical field and has been a uh, patient advocate and a private practitioner in Maine, Colorado, and Massachusetts. She's the director, has been the director of community programs for adults with mental illness and a director of a program for survivors of domestic abuse. In addition, she's uh, the director of a residential program, or has been, for youths aged 6 through 16 as the regional manager for a post-adoption support program and as an acupuncturist in private practice. And uh, is here today speaking with us about uh, medical ethics and how to create the, and, and understand the issues that are essential to the healthy practitioner and client association. And it's interesting when I even wrote that, uh, uh, Deb, I was thinking, what word should I use to describe what happens between a health practitioner and a client? Is it a relationship? Is it an association? Where do we go with, with um, these kinds of uh, of, of words. What, what, is it, what does it mean? And I, I chose association because um, relationship felt a little too intimate somehow. I don't know. Or too close with the boundaries. But in fact, as we're talking, we realize that no matter, even if you see your medical doctor for 10 minutes, you, you're in a relationship. Yes. I, I believe that it's both a a relationship and an association. Mm. Um, I think it's a relationship that has certain parameters around it that other kinds of relationships don't have, and that's the that's the professional layer of it. Correct. So any interaction between two people is a relationship. And well, well, I think it's more more because of the kind of of service that you're receiving um, that it's that it. It is a relationship. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily feel like I have a relationship with the guy who puts my snow tires on <laughs> right, that I right. see, you know, once at, once a year. I, I always go back to the same guy, so <laughs> maybe I do. I don't know, but it, that's a different kind of relation. That's a different kind of interaction than I have with my my primary care doctor, who I also might only see once a year, but I feel like I have a different kind of relationship with my primary care doctor. And so I would call that a relationship. I would call what I have with the guy who puts my snow tires on <laughs> an association. And, right. And, and yes, yeah, an interaction. An interaction, right. yeah. Uh, usually neutral. 
Hopefully, hopefully always neutral. Ne- hopefully, always <laughs> neutral. You know, I'm I'm thinking of um, various Buddhist meditation practices, and I, I think this is this is actually relevant to our conversation because um, what you're doing is you're in, in one of these practices. You're um, you're wishing everyone well. You're sending compassion to the world. Doesn't matter who it is, and you do it in rela- in various to various degrees for different people in your life. So you'll do it to the people closest to you in that kind of relationship. You'll do it to the uh, the people um, that are your teachers or people you admire. And then uh, my favorite group are the neutrals. Mm-hmm. We call them the neutrals. You know, who's the neutral? The guy who changes my tire. May you live and be well. Right. <laughs> you know, right? Yes, you uh, want to have the same basic relationship values of honesty um, and and, you know, respect and all of those things in all relationships, but when you have this other layer where you're disclosing, you know, personal information, which you do yes. with healthcare practitioners, right. then it becomes more of a relationship. Yes, definitely. So, um, so the ideal situation, people coming in, you are, are providing a service, people hopefully are getting better, and through that, you know, we know that part of healing is, as, as we said earlier, is not just about your shoulder, although your shoulder may feel better. And some of that healing is really delving into the safety, feeling comfortable, seeing how other parts of your life um, affect what's going on in your body. We know the, bo- the mind-body relationship. And I I'm, I'm have a lot of experience listening to people saying, I have a problem with my medical doctor because everything's too fast these days. They don't really ask me how things are. Mm-hmm. You know. And then on the other hand, um, we have, I have people who come in and say, I don't really want to talk about my mother or, or my kids. I'm really here because my left knee hurts. Right. Can you just do that? So I think it's our, our job somewhere um, for everybody who's a licensed practitioner doing whatever you're doing in your mode of, of healing to really be listening. There's no reason, as far as I'm concerned, and you tell me, you know, that if someone really just wants that symptomatic treatment, let's go for it. And right. The, and and um, if someone is looking for that more in-depth, let's meet that as well. And if it's not part of the scope of my practice, then I say, well, here's, here's a referral. Here's someone, you know, we haven't discussed that referral, the, the, the professional aspect of referral. Here's someone, um, this is a little bit out of my scope of practice. Let me give you the name of someone who's really, really good at that. Absolutely. I think that's, that's a really critical piece of, of having a professional relationship with someone is that you are able to say to them, you know, I might not be the best person to treat you uh, for this particular aspect of what you're talking about, but I know somebody else who's really skilled, and I would like to um, send you along to them. Um, Because I think one of the things that happens is, uh, unfortunately, practitioners will attempt to do things that they, they really can't do, and that ends up with the, the person, the patient, the client um, being disgruntled um, because they, they, didn't, they didn't get resolution for what they were asking for. Um, and so I think that's a part of professional responsibility as well. To know when to refer. Yes, to recognize your limitations 
and say, you know, this just isn't something I do well. Um, for me, one of, one of the things is in my acupuncture practice, I don't have very good success treating um, people with headaches. I get a lot of people calling for treatment with headache, and I just have to say to them, that's something that I haven't quite figured out how to manage well. And I, you know, can refer you to someone else, or if you really want to come see me, you know, let's set up a contract that says, if we're not able to resolve your symptoms within this many treatments, that you will agree to go to see somebody else. <laughs> um, and that that's something I think we just need to need to all do. That's that's a really clear boundary that you've just described. Well, I think it's important because otherwise, um, you know, I end up with somebody, you know, that's not getting better, um, and then they question whether or not acupuncture works at all, and I don't think that's good for the patient, and I don't think it's good for the profession. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's probably true across the board in, in, in every profession. Oh, I believe so. There are some, you know, there are mental health practitioners who limit their practice um, you know, to certain kinds of, of uh, conditions because they recognize either they, you know, are, are not, not good at treating certain things and, or their personal issues would get in the way of them being able to provide clear and objective treatment for a person suffering from, from that same condition. And I'm thinking of somebody, you know, say, for, ex- for example, who was a survivor themselves of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, they might or might not be a very good treatment provider for someone who is dealing with issues of sexual abuse act- actively, mm-hmm. um, either because their, you know, their own um, issues would get in the way of that or, be- or because it would be still too fresh for them and they just could not provide um, good guidance on it. Yes, um, I'm, I'm thinking of the other shows that we've done for uh, the last year or number of months. We've been doing a, a whole series on post-traumatic stress and disorder, and constantly what I... And I think we should say that now as well, because this conversation might even be triggering some people, that, that it doesn't... To really go into uh, the trauma... It does not often take much. That's true. It doesn't. So. Yes, very um, seemingly innocuous, casual things can be triggers. Right. If you, ha- if you, you know, haven't had that experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking of, a, uh, of another, another example, and I, I, I've done a number of shows here. I'm not sure if I've used this example yet, but I'm going to do it again, or I'm going to risk it and say it again anyway. Um, I have a colleague who um, somebody came to to this practitioner for weight loss issues and uh, just wanted to get that into control. And this, by the way, is a client that um, my friend considers her best success case, and she only saw her three times. And here's what happened. The woman comes in once, it was a woman, wanted to deal with losing weight, got a treatment, and had this whole slew of other issues going on. She was stuck in a job. She wasn't able to move forward in her life in other ways. And after this first treatment, she all of a sudden got all of this energy and said, well, you know what? I'm really going to, I'm leaving this job. I'm finding a new job. So she did that. She was having an unresolved relationship. She said, that's it. This relationship's over. She came in for another treatment. 
by the way, you know, I'm, let's just keep working on the weight loss. Then the second treatment happens. Next thing you know, she's making new plans to go on a trip that she's wanted to do for years. Basically, her entire life changes. And after the third treatment, it might have even been the second treatment, who knows, um, my friend gets a call saying, yeah, this woman's life has totally been altered. And it's, it's, by, it's by, at, right after these treatments. And then the woman says, well, listen, I really need to stop treatment now because I really haven't lost enough weight. <laughs> uh-huh. And I love it. And she says, this woman was my absolute most success, successful client, and, and she never came back. <laughs> right. Well, sometimes you can't see those things because you're too close. <laughs> that's, that's it. So what is healing and what are we doing, you know, as we talk about, about, um, about uh, ethical issues? Yes. Yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, and, and I do, do want to reiterate, that was, it was a, a, an acupuncturist, it was, it was one of our colleagues, but, um, and, uh, but, but not us. Uh, anyway, uh, but I love that, I love that story. Um, and it is, and, and that all comes into play, I think, when we're talking about those ethical responsibilities. It does, because, you know, it is ethical to let that person go and yes. not to try to defend your practice <laughs> and also not to try to point out all of the changes that, in, in fact, have happened since the acupuncture started. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, by the way, I want you to really acknowledge. <laughs> let's, you know, let's go back a little bit to, to something we touched on earlier about the, well, we've been discussing the whole time about the power dynamic. And I'm, I'm wondering, in your experience, if you see this playing out differently as a gender issue, um, men uh, versus women working with practitioners or male practitioners working with female clients, you know, back and forth. How, how do you see, does gender play a role in this or, or what's... I think gender can play a role in it. I, I think the practitioner is almost always in the more powerful position, regardless of gender. Um, but certainly, if it's a male practitioner, you know, that and a female client, that certainly adds to the power dynamic and to the power inequity in the relationship. Um, and, and that's not to say that you know women should only be treated by women at all, because I think they're you know that that it, if it is an issue in the relationship, discussing it, understanding it, um, and having it be part of the treatment process can be absolutely invaluable. Right. And uh, obviously it's not just men, women, you know, there, there are all these configurations, uh, you know, with children and men right. and, and boys. I mean, that, yeah, well, I'm, I'm certainly not um, limiting this to uh, any one kind of stereotypical idea of how things can go wrong. So, um, yeah. So, you know, when we have our expectations, and I think, what you, let's talk about a little bit about a practitioner expectation. What, what's, you know, what, what do we have to be careful about as we, as we proceed with our practices? I, th- I really think that the, the, the primary thing is to really be aware of, of yourself and your limitations and also the things that might be triggers or traps for you, because we we all have them. Um, and if you're aware of them, and you you know hopefully can see them coming. Sometimes you can't see them coming until you're right in it, 
and then, you know, we have a responsibility to ourselves to um, try and, and get ourselves out of those situations by recognizing that it's not healthy, it's not productive for us, and, and therefore it won't be healthy or productive for the, for the patient or for the client. We have to be our best selves in our relationships with our patients. And if we're, you know, if we're not able to do that, then I believe we have a responsibility to back out of the relationship and to acknowledge that it's us um, that where the problem lies, not with the patient. Mm-hmm. Take responsibility. Yes. For yes. that. And that's where referrals come in. That's where referrals mm-hmm. come in, yes. And I think that that's also where, you know, supervision comes in, having a group of colleagues that you can rely on, that you know what their, what their strengths are, and that, you know, you can, you can refer out. Um, you know, I think a lot of times we get into this scarcity mentality that if I, you know, I have to treat everybody that comes to me for treatment mm-hmm. because if I don't, my practice is going to flounder. I'm not going to make enough money. And, you know, that I just don't believe that that's, that that's the case. I think what will happen is that you will get the right people to work with and you will have more success and that the success will build on itself. Um, If you are treating the wrong people and you aren't successful or you have all kinds of issues and problems that arise as a result of it, then it will, you know, it will make things really bad in your practice. So we have to overcome the, this somehow competitive, it's got to all be mine kind of idea. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And that's very, very hard to do because, you know, we're, we're conditioned to consume and to believe that there's, there's a finite limit on everything. And that means, you know, there's a finite limit of numbers of people that want acupuncture or want mental health services or, <laughs> you know, and that... Or want their haircut. Or want their haircut. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's just not true. I don't, I don't believe. Right. So as a and, and, and as a client, it's it's the client's then responsibility and, and to maintain and to really empower to be empowered to maintain their own safety um, by saying this feels uncomfortable or gee, are we really what kind of progress what what should I be expecting here? Yeah. You know, what's what's coming and and sometimes, you know, the as the practitioner's honest, they can say, I can't give you a timeline. You know, it, there are many things that will that will either enhance the success of your treatment or will get in the way of your treatment. I mean, if you have somebody who's serious about weight loss, you know, they need to do more than just come to your office for a treatment once or twice a week. Mm-hmm. They need to be working on it in the rest of their life as well. And and that's, you know, that's the patient responsibility. Mm-hmm. Can they, you know, develop a plan with you as a practitioner? Absolutely. Um, and mm-hmm. do they need to be honest with you and as to their, you know, ability to adhere to the plan? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and as a practitioner, then your responsibility is not to shame them, no. <laughs> but to empower them and to say, okay, well, let's see how we can, t- you know, adjust this so it will be possible for you to be successful at it. Mm-hmm. So really, and, and I think on both ends, uh, we are really talking about comfort levels. I think... That if something doesn't feel comfortable from both directions, as a client or as a practitioner, then there has to be a safe way to back out and, and, and refer out or um, say not make another appointment or somehow, somehow um, 
really take that responsibility in, into each each person's own own uh, experience and own hands, or to discuss it. Um, you know, yes. I I had in early in my um, acupuncture practice, I had someone come to me for acupuncture, and I um, did the intake and <clears throat> set them all up in in the treatment room so that they could get on the table while I you know got ready to treat them. And I usually leave the room while the person is getting on the table, and when I came back in, the person did not have any clothes on. Whoops. And I said, you know, I'm really uncomfortable here. Uh, you know, this is not what I asked, and this is um, not how I do treatment. And they said, oh, this is the way that I'm most comfortable. This is the way I, I always got my acupuncture treatments. And I needed to be comfortable enough in that situation to say, I'm sorry, I can't do this. Um, and, you know, you either need to put some clothes on for me to be able to work with you or I can't do this this session with you, um, and and we agreed, you know, on the resolution of that of that. But I did not work with that person in the future right. um, because I, you know, was not comfortable. Um, I wasn't sure what was going on, and um, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to put myself in a position where I, you know, could be accused of taking advantage of the patient. And I felt like I needed to really have a very clear limit there. Mm-hmm. Very, very powerful. That's a powerful example of of when things, when you, you have to use, well, that was very clear. That wasn't a very subtle, intuitive moment, but it was very clear, a good boundary. No, it wasn't a, it wasn't a subtle moment at all, and it was completely a surprise to me when it happened. Right. Um, I had no, no expectation because generally, uh, you know, I'm real specific with people about what areas of their body I'm going to work on, what areas I would need them either to take clothing off or, you know, that it's not necessary to remove all of their clothing if they do need to take their outerwear off, I always provide sheets for them to drape with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was pretty surprised when I walked in and the person had no clothing on at all. <laughs> that wasn't subtle. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you did cut his hair. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Just kidding. Okay. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> a little trim right there. A little, yes. Just really, you'll be good as new. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, goodness. Uh, so we have actually covered quite a lot of ground. Let's see. We have a few minutes left. Um, what, what, where do we need to go in the, in the remaining few minutes? What have we... Uh, and we have to talk, you know, we can't say, okay, we're done. No, we're right. not. Okay. No. <laughs> I think the, the most important thing for both patients and practitioners is that they are comfortable with themselves, understand what their boundaries and their limits are, whatever you call them. If, it's, if you call your boundary, you know, the feeling you get in your stomach that makes you uncomfortable, that's, that's okay. But if you feel that either as a practitioner or a client or a patient, Honor that feeling and check it out. And if the only way that you can check it out is by saying, I can't do this, I need to leave, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's really important because uh, uh, to be very specific in that way, we're, we're using words about um, feeling uncomfortable, but you just brought it into a whole uh, individual sensation knowing Right, and so because I think that's that's really important um, that sometimes someone 
would not trust their own feeling, their own intuition, because it's not something external or it's not something you can define. But there is that funny feeling in the stomach or there's just some weird thing that just doesn't feel right. Right. And, what, and whatever that is. And, it's, and as people become more self-aware, often they will know what that means. But sometimes if someone's learning, even that, to trust the, the, the knowing, to trust that tingle, to trust that, ooh, I don't know. And just say, oh, I'm not going to hang in here just because. Right. Mm-hmm. No matter who the person is or what kind of authority figure they are, I, I believe, right. you know, we have to become the greatest authority in our lives. And if whatever is being proposed to you doesn't feel right, then back out and take time, think about it, check it out with other people, check it out with other practitioners of the same modality, find out if it's usual and customary. And if it still feels creepy to you, then don't do it. And that applies to practitioners as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if a person is asking you for something that you don't feel comfortable about, then don't do it. Mm-hmm. So the conversation uh, uh, has to, you know, c- will continue on uh, on that. Uh, that's a, that's a, a really important self uh, empowering um, note. And I want to also talk about some resources. I don't have all the phone numbers here. I, for, with the snowstorm, it was actually hard to actually gather some information that I wanted. But um, anyone can call me if they have information or need information about um, how to proceed. There are government. Inf- uh, for whatever practitioners, there are state um, organizations. There is uh, there are state licensing boards um, for phys- for all of the uh, modalities we've talked about, and so uh, uh, that kind of phone call is useful if it needs to go that far. Sometimes, just saying, "Hey, this isn't working for me," is is just enough. You don't have to make a big deal. But uh, other than that, sometimes you do have to take it further, and there are resources out there. Um, to to follow through, and I think what you said that this the organizations, state organizations, local organizations, um, are really good resources. So um, so use them if you need to. Deb, are you there? I yes. am okay. still here. <laughs> Anything you want to add? Just be no, a minute. No, I, I think you're absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the internet is an incredible resource for people, and you can certainly find the names, phone numbers, addresses, and also the ethical ethical standards of each different profession just by going online and doing a real simple search. And I encourage people to do that. Well, thank you so much for being with us. We've been, uh, you've been listening to Healthy Options, and I'm Rhonda Feynman, your host. If you need to reach me, I'm at 338-4454 in the Belfast area. Deb Estelle has been our guest. She's been uh, uh, working in the medical field for 25 years. She's a patient advocate as well as a healthcare practitioner in private practice. She's been the director of many community programs for adults with mental illness and survivors of domestic abuse. She's been the director of a residential program for uh, for kids 6 through 16 and uh, has worked as a regional manager for post-adoption support programs and is also an acupuncturist. Um, we've been discussing medical ethics and uh, the bottom line is trust yourself and that's always a good a good thing to do no matter where you are. And um, if you missed any portion of this show, it can be, uh, it'll be on the archives at healthyoptionswru.org. So you can listen to it and catch up with it. And uh, excuse me, thank you for listening.
Support for health-related programming on WERU comes from Inner Tapestry, Maine's holistic journal, featuring alternative health and natural living articles, calendar listings, and a directory of resources, available at health food stores and alternative health centers, 799-7995 or innertapestry.org.